Blog Talk Radio. The information discussed during the show is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any condition. If your pet is currently experiencing any medical issues, please seek immediate assistance from a licensed veterinarian. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Caroline O'Sullivan, and you're listening to Holistic Pet Care with Dr. O. I hope everyone had a great week, and you're ready to learn some really cool stuff today. Um, We are very, very fortunate today to have both Chad Hunter and Andrew from Hunter Canine with us today talking about rattlesnake avoidance training. Now, I know that this is something that uh, many folks in my experience, either students or clients or just conversations, don't even know that this wonderful service exists. And for us being here in Arizona, uh, it's extremely important. And for other places, not only in the United States, but other places in the world, um, rattlesnake uh, injuries, rattlesnake bites, and literally the fear of the owners about having their dogs getting bit by rattlesnakes and just not knowing what services are available to them is something that kind of keeps a lot of our our four-legged friends from getting out and having some fun. So first of all, as always, I want to thank Gail Sylvia Global for letting this show happen in the first place, and for everyone that works for her that makes this happen every single week. Um, Thank you, Austin F. I really appreciate your time and effort. And I want to ask everyone to like us on Facebook. I'm sorry, I've got a sore throat today. At Holistic Pet Care with Dr. O. Follow us on Twitter at Dr. O. DVM. And you can stay up to date on all of the shows, all of the topics, and how to contact all of our wonderful guests. And then go ahead and give us questions and ideas for the next shows. So with that, we are only allowed 30 minutes today. So let's get started. Good morning, Chad and Andrew. I want to thank you guys so much for your time and bringing this topic to the world. No problem, Dr. O. Thank you very much for having us. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. Can you guys tell us a little bit about Hunter Canine? I know that the, well, I've heard, I don't know personally yet, rattlesnake avoidance training is just one piece of a really um, cohesive program and services and experiences that you guys offer. And I believe in my conversation with Andrew uh, a while ago, I expressed my thoughts that I really appreciate what you do because um, letting dogs be dogs, regardless of what their drives and traits are and what it is that they want to do and what it is they're born to do, and appreciating that and fostering that in a very positive way um, is one of the things that I'm a a true believer in, but also sometimes have difficult times finding facilities or like-minded folks that run places like that. So I was really encouraged with my conversation with Andrew about what you guys are doing there. So um, would you like to tell people what you guys do at Hunter Canine, your thought processes, and how they can get a hold of you, since we're going to run a little bit short today? Sure. So we are a full-service training facility. Um, our primary service is a two-week uh, boarding training program that we call a training retreat. Um, and during that time, we work to overcome any sort of problematic behavior issues that owners are having with their dogs. 
um, whether it be just general obedience problems or territorialness or fearfulness and anxiety to aggression, uh, we're able to help them overcome all of those problems. And we do that through a process of teaching the dog during their two-week stay that they're here. And then we also do a lot of follow-up with the owners to teach them how to maintain and and keep that training going so that it's long-lasting for them uh, and essentially for the lifetime of the dog. As part of that, we like to offer a lot of other different things for the dogs while they're here to make their stay very comfortable. So we've got a lot of space here, and we're able to offer lots of play groups for them. We do lure coursing. We do agility. We do some protection training for dogs that are inclined to do so. We do herding. Uh, we have group classes. We're in the process of putting in a dock diving pool. So we really like to make the dogs stay here very nice and calm and, and productive, but also give them time to, as you said, kind of be a dog and explore the world and build their confidence through all these other avenues. Right, right. The confidence building piece and positive, positive reinforcement for those wonderful behaviors and such is just so important as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then the idea that they get to actually uh, pursue the things that they really enjoy, not so much the things that their humans think that they should enjoy. Um, so it's nice to have folks out there that can differentiate those things with regard to, you know, like I said, the drives and traits of these guys and um, just kind of reinforce it and let them have a good time just being a dog. And then the human component is so important, right, because how do we follow up positive and reinforcement or consistency of behavior or expectations and those types of things. So uh, I think what it is that you guys are offering is is uh is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing and hard to find in one place through my experience um, around the world, actually. So I, I really do appreciate you guys' time. I know that there's probably a lot of people and a lot of four-leggeds waiting, waiting on your time and your experience and your knowledge. So <laughs> I guess we can get started with the, the rattlesnake avoidance training. Um, if you were to tell like many of my clients, unfortunately, that don't even know that it exists. Now, why do we think that rattlesnake avoidance training is so important, especially, like, let's say in my case, my black lab, I don't, you know, she goes out and she's a dog, she just runs on the trail and has a good old time that she's going to come in contact with something that she's never seen before that she thinks might just be fun and making a weird noise, right? So why is it that, why do we think that rattlesnake avoidance training is so important and it's so important that people know that this is available? Well, like you said, Dr. O, that initially when when we started the show, you had explained that dogs, you know, have some natural tendencies that kind of want to, you know, to, to, to be curious in the thing. So what what that's based on is, is something called prey drive. And, and right. what a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, is that dogs are genetically structured to be prey-driven animals. So naturally, if they see something that moves, something that makes a noise, it's going to raise curiosity, it's going to build prey drive, and therefore yep. going to want to, you know, that dog's going to want to initially engage in, in that, and in this case, a rattlesnake, which is not what we want. So to uh, to to clarify the the rattlesnake avoidance training is basically to you want to tr- you want to create a negative association with the snake not to the point to where uh, to where it uh, you know is, is detrimental on the dog but to where it's just clear to the dog and the same exact concept is almost touching a hot stove it's hot okay I learned that that's my lesson I got to stay away from that and for future reference I'm always gonna have in the back of my mind that that stove is hot same type of concept with a snake now most importantly linked to this prey drive is that we have to realize and take in consideration that dogs are going to be using their noses far more than what they're going to be looking for or, or, or even listening to at this point, right? So we, our most important attribute that we're, that we're trying to obtain here is, is that we want to make sure that the dog has a proper scent of the rattlesnake. Now, right. a, lot of, a lot of people may ask, 
um, that is, you know, is there a difference between a bull snake and a rattlesnake or a king snake and a rattlesnake? Absolutely, when it comes to yes. scent. You know, the, the, the venom of a scent, um, uh, the, the venom of the snake admits a scent that is, that is far different from that of a bull snake. So actually, there are actually dogs that, you know, are, are going to be more, because we work with just strictly rattlesnakes, we have Mojave rattlesnakes, we have diamondback rattlesnakes, we have, uh, we have uh, uh, there's a forest rattlesnake that we've, they've had in here. So we've had basically all forms of rattlesnakes, but they all admit a very similar scent, and that's the scent that we're going based off of because, as, as they say, you know, a dog's scent is, is, is uh, 10 to 15,000 times greater than what ours is. So in the space that a dog's always going to be using his nose when he just goes to bury it down in the, in, the, uh, in the desert looking through bushes, and then based on that, people don't realize either that a snake is not always going to rattle. You know, everyone always sees a rattlesnake and that the floor fair warning is going to be a rattlesnake. I've had several instances mm-hmm. where where snakes have basically, you know, uh, you know, struck at dogs when they didn't even alert or people just in general. So that's why we really work on scent base and then we work more towards sound once we have a good, you know, foundation of scent on the dog. Right. So, I think it's important for people to understand that these snakes are acting the same way you and I would act, or the same way your dog would act, if they feel threatened, if somebody comes into their home, God forbid if they have baby snakes there, that snakes aren't vicious, violent, horrifying creatures that are out to get us. They just, we're in their space, in their house, we've stepped on their front door or scared them or woke them up or those types of things. So the idea that that this is you know bad snake, good dog type situation, I don't believe that for a second. I think that if somebody came into my house and scared me, I'm not sure I would warn them before I reacted. So everyone felt forewarned about that, apparently. <laughs> but but I also I do a lot of work with uh, a lot of work. I did a lot of work with products. You know, and I went to Tasmania and do stuff. You know, to get around all the you know the the sticky, gooey, crawling, venomous everything there and such. But I'm a firm believer that that you know snakes are just another one of our wonderful creatures, and that we just have to respect them in the same way we need to respect each other and our dogs with all of their their skills, their talents. And what you pointed out was so important, that the way a dog's nose works is far and away larger than I think that most people will ever understand. And the way that we're able to facilitate that in so many spectrums of using their dog's nose for uh, for our own good, be it bomb dogs, cancer dogs, seizure dogs, those types of dogs, if our, if our listening audience can just kind of translate that to using that powerful nose to investigate and to just kind of see their world through their nose is completely normal. And that these snakes, their reaction is also completely normal. So protecting each one of those organisms from each other is a very positive thing as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, the human component. We don't want the humans getting bit either. So hopefully our dogs can be an early warning system that, hey, mom, don't go over there because there's something over there that doesn't smell right. So I think the services you guys provide, it's so multifaceted. So how, how do you guys achieve this? Let's say that I'm, I come to your training for the first time. I don't know exactly what's going on except for I'm getting around to make a voice training. What shall I expect? So when you come to the facility, you, we put your dog on just the long line and just a, like a limited slip collar, like just a fabric kind of martingale collar. Um, and we use an electronic collar as well. And we'll spend a couple minutes having the dog just get kind of used to the equipment and have it kind of sit on them so they don't immediately understand that new equipment has come on. There's probably something up with that. So we'll right. have the dogs kind of fall in a little bit. And then we actually handle the dogs for the whole thing. 
Um, and the reason is, is because we want the association to be with the snake. We don't want it to be with the equipment. We don't want it to be with the handler. We don't want it to be with us. So by us handling it, we immediately eliminate the handler association. Um, and then for most dogs, once they kind of get with us and they don't have a foundation in obedience or rules and they're very willing to kind of just go out and work on their own and, and explore the world maybe a little bit more than they would with their parents. So we're right. able to allow them to work very independently during this time. And they're on a long line, so they've got plenty of space to, to work and operate and, and just smell around, you know. And right. we will walk up to the cage uh, to the best of our ability, you know. Some dogs will just smell it and go right into it, you know, and we don't have to do much work. Other dogs, you've got to kind of walk up to the cage. And then once they're sniffing in the cage, we'll use uh, a stimulus from the electronic collar to essentially, like Chad said, kind of teach them, like, that's the hot stove. That's something that you want to avoid, right? If you go back into psychological history, it's kind of like the little Albert experiments where they uh, essentially conditioned a little boy to become fearful and, and anxious over the, the presence of a, of a white rat, right? And then he would generalize that to, to different animals as well. So same idea here. When you're smelling that, you get a, a little bit of a negative stimulus to teach you, teach the dog that that's something that you would want to avoid. And then as soon as they get that stimulus, whoever's on the long line starts running away with the dog to ultimately teach the response, which is when you smell that, you want to not just avoid it, but you want to completely get out of its way and out of its space. So we'll run the dog away to teach them the response, and then we'll do this once, twice, three times, four times, depending on the dog, especially in how, how driven they are, uh, both prey as well as maybe a little bit of fight. Some dogs' natural response yep. to that initial stimulus is to go and try to kind of fight the cage or fight the snake, you know? Right, um, right. So we want to make sure that they don't think that that's, the good, that that's a, a good option for them as well. So how, how many times we have to do this, and we do it on several different snakes, uh, depends on their initial re response and, and how quickly they understand the idea of running away from it. Um, right. We have several locations for the snakes, um, so it's also not context-dependent, uh, right? They see it in several different locations. They're walked up to several different cages, so they understand the idea of it's the snake, it's not the equipment, it's not the handler, it's not where we are, it's this specific stimulus that we are getting you to create a negative association with. And that's, that's foundationally a smell and then a noise, but the smell per snake, like you're saying with the green Mojaves versus the rats versus, you know, some of the other snakes, the smell that's emitted will be different. So making sure that they get exposure to different kinds of rattlers or different kinds of snakes that will be hazardous to their, their future is really important. Like you said, it's not just, it's in a box, it's not just, it's this guy holding me, it's not just this thing on my neck, it's the, it's the, it's the snake, the smell of the snake that gets associated with the stimulus, and then the whole get the hell out of here type um, response. Um, exactly. And then doing a couple different species, specific species, helps the, helps the dogs to generalize. So taking one, taking one specific stimulus and then applying that same rule to stimuluses that are similar, right? So if we go back to Pavlov's experiment where mm -hmm. he would ring a bell dogs to salivate, eventually yep. he was able to do that with several different sounding bells, right? And the dog just generalized the idea of a bell, right? Something ringing <laughs> indicates food to me. So it's the same idea here right, yep. where we show them several different 
species of snakes, so they generalize the idea of the smell of venomous snake, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, and, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's funny because humans do it too, that whole generalization thing or the overgeneralization thing, you know, if, if this was bad, and I think about things like whether it's a police officer driving by or it's an IRS agent or it's that one with the mail. I mean, this is pretty innocuous stuff, but it's an overgeneralization of this is bad or this is going to lead to no good and those types of things. So the idea that you that using that, that was a little alpha experiment, perfect. And then, of course, Pavlov. Um, and these are things that folks, if you're interested in knowing what the little alpha experiment or, of course, Pavlov's dogs, as many people know, that word, but don't actually know the um, the science and the theory that went behind those experiments. Uh, it, it's a good it's a good read whether you do Doctor Wikipedia or you look it up on you know uh, anywhere else. There's good information going in if if your brain and you want to know more information about the foundation of the thought process that goes through this. It, it really is quite perfect and quite well founded in history, in science, and um, long term um, reinforced. Effects. Now, with that being said, how long do you guys feel the training, the um, avoidance or aversion training works? Is it a dog-to-dog variation, or do you recheck them every year to make sure that they still don't want to be around snakes, or is it two-year, five-year, owner says they're acting weird? How do you guys keep up with no, that? No, absolutely. Uh, so, kind of how, so, so kind of related to both is that it, it, is, it is based on dog, and it's you know, based on, on a lot of time. And, we recommend an annual recheck. So basically, every 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 year, um, we actually do the snake training as early as February sometimes because let's face it, it starts warming up pretty quick here. You know, we always get early springs every now and then, and, and sometimes the snakes because they've had a you know a long winter, they want to come out early. So we get the snake right. training done as early as sometimes late January, February, um, and then we usually have those clients will come annually. So they'll come every every once again every spring. Um, we have a we have some clients that. Are, are that want to come in October when we finalize the training in October before it gets too cool and the snakes head into hibernation. Um, uh-huh. So we actually have some clients that will do it twice a year. And we all, but but, uh, a, but but realistically, once a year. Now, obviously, now based on uh, you know on your drive of your dog. So we we're talking about initial drive, and when I say drive, we we're talking about the prey drive. What I was explaining earlier. So if I have, I'll use a, I'll use a, a breed for an example, like a Jack Russell Terrier. Let's say you know, those dogs are known to have. <laughs> a very high level of prey drive, right? And they also have what's called, you know, a fight drive. So, in other words, those are dogs that are initially, when they receive a negative stimulus from, from the smell or sound of a rattlesnake, as opposed to flight, they say, okay, you, you, you're the one who created the sensation around my neck, so therefore they want to take it out on the snake. So those are, those are dogs that once we do get them through the training and make them understand that negative association, but still they're because they are such strong-willed dogs, you know, yes. always those terrier breeds. I've even had some Labrador retrievers. I mean, it's, it's not even breed-specific anymore because, let's face it, there's so many breeds of dogs that have so many similar personalities these days and so many high, strong personalities. But yeah. if you have a very high, strong, very super prey-driven dog, is that I recommend that those dogs are, are, are checked every six months um, or so. Sure. You know, I recommend in the spring and then once again right, right in fall, right when fall starts, um, you know, come in that, you know, September, October time. But um, right, cool. there also cool. are some instances where I've had some of my own personal dogs where uh-huh. I had them snake trained when they were about a year and a half old, and I never had them rechecked until about four or five years later, and they never skipped a beat, and it, 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 didn't, it, it, it was an absolute same exact response as when they were, you know, four or five years ago when, when I had done them originally as younger dogs or as pups. 
So yeah, and I think it it's really just, so just depends in, on the so dog. Inherent. Yeah, exactly. It's so inherent, that drive and like that fight drive and those things. These are inherent qualities and with the work I do with constitution types, drives and traits in those types of things, like you're saying, it's not necessarily a breed type, although they do have a predilection to do certain things, which is why we love them so much. But um, what you're saying is so important that it's an individual thing and that some of these guys, like you said, when snake causes stimulation, in their these dogs, sometimes they're like, oh, came on, you know. So they, 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 it encourages that that drive versus that oh crap, let's get out of here type thing. So it's so good that you guys are are on top of that, be it yearly or twice a year, and offer people that and educate the humans as to how important that is. Now we do have a question from a caller here. If you guys are willing to take one, it's it's a type in. So um, the question is about uh, the medical status of patients. Is there any harm? Um, with the training callers on patients with heart problems or seizure problems or other problems. So so the concern is with the um, e-caller, the electric caller that you use for the stimulus, is there concerns with that, with the underlying medical problems with dogs, or do you do a little health questionnaire, or do you you inform people what's going to, you know, how this thing works, or um, how does that piece work? Yes, no, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very good question. So, yes, based on every dog upon arriving is that uh, we, we do basically an upfront questionnaire before before that dog is even harnessed, before that dog is even geared up basically to, to go out there to, to become snake trained, is that we ask some very generalized questions. First, I want to know how old the dog is, right? I want to know if this is a puppy, a young dog, or if this is yep. an older dog. I want to know, then based off that, I want to know if this dog is, if it's an older dog, if it has any hip conditions, heart-related conditions, if the dog has ever had a have a had a, a series of epileptic, uh, you know, issues, Good for you. seizures, Good for you. Um, and I want to make sure that basically, um, you know, now realistically, we've done everything from a two and a half pound Yorkie was the smallest dog I've ever done, and I've done a two hundred and fifty pound uh, English Mastiff. So English I mean, I've, I've done pretty much every every breed of dog possible, but also you want to create a stimuli based on, so let's say, I'll, I'll use, for instance, if I have two Labrador Retrievers, right, I see one's a little bit of a softer dog, a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a reserve dog, and I have the other dog, which is a very strong-willed dog, right? Now, obviously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base my first initial level of correction based on that, kind of similar how I would in, in, in a situation with, uh, you know, with the medical issues like you were talking about. So, in other words, that if I have a dog that has been prone to have some, maybe some hip issues or some back problems or, you know, because when that dog at first initially gets that negative stimulus, us, that yes. that we want to make sure that that dog can safely, you know, because we need to make sure that safety is the, is, the, is the first priority, of course. So we want to make sure that if that dog initially jumps, that we're able to do what's called catch the dog, which is not where we physically catch the dog, but where you're able to basically guide the dog if the dog jumps up and keep the dog with the leash just from very gently from coming back down the ground too hard. You know, it's, a, it's little yeah. things like that, and you want to base the stimuli is that I'd, I'd much rather attempt uh, – to have a dog snake trained with very uh, low level of stimuli, you know, based on its medical background, if it has a series of, of medical issues, um, right. and try to build a negative association that way by, by more of a continuous type of a response, negative response, as opposed to just one, uh, what you call a momentary response. Does that make sense? Right. So basically yeah. I, want, I want to create a negative association more kind of with like a, with a with sensation of like a tingle. So we have uh-huh. to understand that the electronic stimuli is, 
it's not pain associated whatsoever. It's the same concept of you run your feet on a trampoline and you touch your touch your finger under the on the side of the trampoline. It kind of gives you that shock. It's not pain. It just gets your attention. It's really kind of a more of an unpleasant feeling, but it's not pain associated because it doesn't linger. It doesn't. You know, that's what we want people to understand as well. So, but yes. Yeah, that's that's so that's so important. I, I really I really appreciate that because I have to be honest with you with all all of the stuff that I've done that led me up to what I'm doing right now. I still. The, the sense of an e-collar makes me twitch a little bit. And, and that's because my experience as a veterinarian has been with people that have misused e-collars in all the wrong ways, and that I've been on the receiving end of helping these animals out, whether it be surgical removal, whether it's, you know, um, of course, uh, 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 long-term uh, ramifications with their personality and their fear, and um, a lot of times burns and those types of things. So I have to tell everyone that I have a bias with this, and it's so refreshing and so reassuring for me to hear you speaking in ways that um, you're explaining things as the whole rub your feet on the carpet then shock yourself, you know, that little, you know, that little zap like a oh, crap, it kind of wakes you up versus some of the things that myself and maybe other people that are listening have seen when e-collars, you know, electronic collars and stuff are used inappropriately or, you know, bought at a store somewhere and used to correct everything on a, patient, on a, on a puppy or an animal that doesn't know what they're doing wrong, you know. So, so e-collars, like you're using, electric collars used by professionals for a certain purpose, as you guys are doing, I have to back it up 100%, and, and that is being said on the other hand that I usually have to, I don't want general civilians, to be perfectly frank with you, having these things in their hands on animals that haven't been properly trained by folks like yourself and or other people that understand drives and traits and positive and negative reinforcement, little Albert testing, and those types of things. So I just, I just want to send out my appreciation to Chad and Andrew for caring and and seemingly doing it right based on education experience and a dog-to-dog variation. I, I just love that. So uh, I really, really appreciate that with you guys. Um, that being said, we've got about four minutes. So Chad and Andrew, will you tell the world how they should get a hold of you if they want to know more about Hunter Canine, more about Rattlesnake and Lance training, and then all of the other things you guys offer with regard to lure training and I like the dog diving is available soon and things with our herding and the protection dog versus Sporting dog training. Um, just take a couple minutes if you don't mind, and I couldn't, I couldn't more positively reinforce and um, support Hunter Canine with regard to this program of doing. Because on the other end of my conversations, I've seen rattlesnake bite wounds. I've seen these animals suffer from these things, and like they said, it's usually on the face and the front legs, and it's hard and it hurts. So if there's a way that we can keep them from getting that and hospitalization and those types of things, I think this might be the way to go. So um, go ahead, you guys. Tell the world how to get a hold of you. Sure. So our website is www.hunterk9.com, and K9 is spelled out, C-A-N-I-N-E. Uh, our phone number is 480-719-3779, and you can also find us on Facebook at Hunter K9, also spelled out again. Uh, we are located in Cave Creek, Arizona, and we have a 12-acre facility here that was built by Chad's dad by his hand. He's actually out there right now helping us finish that dock diving <laughs> pool. So, uh, this was originally a, a nice, beautiful horse training facility that his, that his mom ran. Um, and when they moved out to California, it 
was converted over to a dog training facility, and since then we've made many upgrades to make this really uh, kind of a heaven for dogs, you know. Um, again, anything that you want to be able to do with your dog, we want to be able to offer that. Um, and and any we own and train Belgian Malinois and, and high-drive dogs, so we understand drivey dogs and we understand the need for providing outlets for those dogs. Um, and, and different outlets for different dogs. Not every Malinois is a protection dog, you know. Some are really good at protection. Some are great therapy dogs. So That's right. really finding what it is that your dog is good at or what your dog has a natural inclination to and, and working through that and providing them an outlet so that ultimately any training that you're doing with them is more productive because they have the outlet for, for just their general inclinations. Uh, that that couldn't that couldn't have been more well said. I, I appreciate that so much. I, I run into many people that get a dog because they think it's cool, and they get a dog because they hear it can be a protection dog, and they get a dog for this, that, and everything. And they don't they don't appreciate the drives and traits. They don't appreciate what goes into making sure that these guys have the life that they were born to have in a very positive way. So I really really appreciate that with you guys. Now, um, in the last minute or so. Um, how much owner involvement do you have in all of your training? I know that you have your camps, but but do you have uh, our owners out there doing some large coursing and those types of things? Well, absolutely. So even as part of that camp, uh-huh. a, a very large, even as part of the camp, a very large part of it is the follow-up training because we need the owners to be able to maintain consistency in order for that training to work. Um, outside of that, we do lessons, we do classes. Uh, we have people who come to lore coursing and agility just because they want something fun to do with their dogs, and we also have people who compete in those events and come to practice. and And the handlers are are always there. This place is quite honestly Beautiful. a zoo most of most of the days of the week, with just people coming in and out with their dogs, all working on different things, but all all a piece of the puzzle because they uh-huh. are ultimately the ones who who own their dogs and who go home with their dogs and who have to live their lives with their dogs. So we make sure that they're a big part of it, that they get something out of all of the training as well. Beautiful. Thank you guys so much. We're at the end of our 30 minutes, and I apologize for that. We have to do this again because we have so many more things to talk about. Uh, Once again, I appreciate your time and all of our listening audience. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you um, next time about some really cool stuff that's coming up. And um, holistic uh, Pet Care with Dr. O will be live on YouTube at the end of next week. Once again, have a wonderful week. This is Dr. O saying goodbye. And thank you for having us. Oh, you're very, very welcome, guys. Talk to you very soon. The information discussed during the show is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any condition. If your pet is currently experiencing any medical issues, please seek immediate assistance from a licensed veterinarian.